The Colored Man's Reminiscences of James Madison by Paul Jennings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Preface Among the laborers at the Department of the Interior is an intelligent colored man, Paul Jennings, who was born a slave on President Madison's estate in Montpelier, Virginia, in 1799. His reputed father was Benjamin Jennings, an English trader there, his mother, a slave of Mr. Madison, and the granddaughter of an Indian. Paul was a body servant of Mr. Madison till his death, and afterwards of Daniel Webster, having purchased his freedom of Mrs. Madison. His character for sobriety, truth, and fidelity is unquestioned, and as he was a daily witness of interesting events, I have thought some of his recollections were worth writing down in almost his own language. On the 10th of January, 1865, a curious sale of books, coins, and autographs belonging to Edward M. Thomas, a colored man for many years messenger to the House of Representatives, was sold among other curious lots. An autograph of Daniel Webster containing these words, I have paid $120 for the freedom of Paul Jennings. He agrees to work out the same at $8 per month to be furnished with board, clothes, washing, etc. Reminiscences of Madison About ten years before Mr. Madison was president, he and Colonel Monroe were candidate rivals for the legislature. Mr. Madison was anxious to be elected, and sent his chariot to pick up a Scotchman to the polls, who lived in the neighborhood. But when brought up, he cried out, Put me down for Colonel Monroe, for he was the first man that took me by the hand in this country. Colonel Monroe was elected, and his friends joked Madison pretty hard about his Scotch friend. And I have heard Mr. Madison and Colonel Monroe have a hearty laugh over the subject for years after. When Mr. Madison was chosen president, we came on and moved into the White House. The East Room was not finished, and Pennsylvania Avenue was not paved, but was always in an awful condition. From either mud or dust, the city was a dreary place. Mr. Robert Smith was then Secretary of State, but as he and Mr. Madison could not agree, he was removed, and Colonel Monroe appointed to his place. Mr. Eustace was Secretary of War, rather a rough, blustering man. Mr. Gallatin, a tip-top man, was Secretary of Treasury, and Mr. Hamilton of South Carolina, a pleasant gentleman, who thought Mr. Madison could do nothing wrong, and who always concurred in everything he said, was Secretary of the Navy. Before the War of 1812 was declared, there were frequent consultations at the White House as to the expediency of doing it. Colonel Monroe was always fierce for it. So are Messrs. Laundes, Giles, Poydras, and Pope, all Southerners. All his secretaries were likewise in favor of it. Soon after war was declared, Mr. Madison made his regular summer visit to his farm in Virginia, we had not been there long before an express reached us one evening informing Mr. M. of General Hull's surrender. He was astonished at the news and started back to Washington the next morning. After the war had been going on for a couple of years, the people of Washington began to be alarmed for the safety of the city, as the British held Chesapeake Bay with a powerful fleet and army. Everything seemed to be left to General Armstrong, then Secretary of War, who ridiculed the idea that there was any danger. But in August 1814, the enemy had got so near there could be no doubt of their intentions. Great alarm existed, and some feeble preparations for defense were made. 
Commodore Barney's flotilla was stripped of men who were placed in battery at Bladensburg, where they fought splendidly. A large part of his men were tall, strapping negroes, mixed with white sailors and marines. Mr. Madison reviewed them just before the fight, and asked Commodore Barney if his negroes would not run on the approach of the British. No, sir, said Barney. They don't know how to run. They will die by their guns first. They fought till a large part of them were killed or wounded, and Barney himself wounded and taken prisoner. One or two of these negroes are still living here. Well, on the 24th of August, sure enough, the British reached Bladensburg, and the fight began between 11 and 12. Even that very morning, General Armstrong assured Mrs. Madison there was no danger. The President, with General Armstrong, General Winder, Colonel Monroe, Richard Rush, Mr. Graham, Tench Ringgold, and Mr. Duval, rode out on horseback to Bladensburg to see how things looked. Mrs. Madison ordered dinner to be ready at three as usual. I set the table myself and brought up the ale, cider, wine, and placed them in the coolers, as all the cabinet and several military gentlemen and strangers were expected. While waiting at just about three, Asuki the house servant was lolling out of the chamber window, James Smith, a free-colored man who had accompanied Mr. Madison to Bladensburg, galloped up to the house, waving his hat, and cried out, Clear out! Clear out! General Armstrong has ordered a retreat. All then was confusion. Mrs. Madison ordered her carriage, and passing through the dining room, caught up what silver she could crowd into her old-fashioned reticule, and then jumped into the chariot with her servant girl Suki and Daniel Carroll, who took charge of them. Joe Boland drove them over to Georgetown Heights. The British were expected in a few minutes. Mr. Cutts, her brother-in-law, sent me to a stable on 14th Street for his carriage. People were running in every direction. John Freeman, the colored butler, drove off in his coachy with his wife, child, and servant. Also a feather bed lashed on behind the coachy, which was all the furniture saved, except for part of the silver and the portrait of Washington, of which I will tell you by and by. I will here mention that although the British were expected every minute, they did not arrive for some hours. In the meantime, a rabble taking advantage of the confusion ran all over the White House and stole lots of silver and whatever else they could lay their hands on. About sundown, I walked over to the Georgetown Ferry and found the president in all hands, the gentleman named before, who acted as sort of bodyguard for him, waiting for the boat. It soon returned, and we all crossed over and passed up the road about a mile. They then left us servants to wander about. In a short time, several wagons from Bladensburg, drawn by Barney's artillery horses, passed up the road, having crossed the long bridge before it was set on fire. As we were cutting up some planks, a white wagoner ordered us away, and told his boy Tommy to reach out his gun and he would shoot us. I told him he had better have used it at Bladensburg. Just then, we came up with Mr. Madison and his friends, who had been wandering about for some hours, consulting what to do. I walked on to a Methodist minister's, and in the evening, while he was at prayer, I heard a tremendous explosion, and rushing out, saw that public buildings, navy yard, rope walks, and etc. were on fire. Mrs. Madison slept that night at Mrs. Love's, two or three miles over the river. After leaving that place, she called in at a home and walked upstairs. The lady of the house, learning who she was, became furious and went up the stairs and screamed out, Miss Madison, if that's you, come down and go out. Your husband has got mine out fighting, and d 
You, you shan't stay in my house, so get out. Mrs. Madison complied, and went to Mrs. Miner's a few miles further, where she stayed a day or two, and then returned to Washington, where she found Mr. Madison at her brother-in-law's, Richard Cutts, on F Street. All the facts about Mrs. M I learned from her servant, Suki. We moved into the house of Colonel John B. Taylor, corner of 18th Street and New York Avenue, where we lived till the news of peace arrived. In two or three weeks after we returned, Congress met in an extra session at Wadgett's old shell of a house on 7th Street, where the general post office now stands. It was three stories high, and had been used for a theater, a tavern, an Irish boarding house, etc., but both houses of Congress managed to get along in it very well. Notwithstanding, it had to accommodate the patent office, city and general post office, committee rooms, and what was left of the congressional library at the same time. Things are very different now. The next summer, Mr. John Law, a large property owner about the Capitol, fearing it would not be rebuilt, got up a subscription and built a large brick building, now called the Old Capitol, where the secesh prisoners are confined, and offered it to Congress for their use, till the Capitol could be rebuilt. This coaxed them back, though strong efforts were made to remove the seat of government north, but the southern members kept it here. It has often been stated in print that when Mrs. Madison escaped from the White House, she cut out from the frame the large portrait of Washington, now in one of the parlors here, and carried it off. This is totally false. She had no time for doing it. It would have required a ladder to get down. All she carried off was the silver in her reticule, as the British were thought to be but a few squares off, and were expected every moment. John Suzet, a Frenchman, then doorkeeper and still living, and McGraw, the president's gardener, took it down and sent it off on a wagon with some large silver urns and such other valuables as could be hastily got hold of. When the British did arrive, they ate up the very dinner and drank the wines and etc. that I had prepared for the president's party. When the news of peace arrived, we were crazy with joy. Miss Sally Coles, a cousin of Mrs. Madison, and afterwards wife of Andrew Stevenson, since minister to England, came to the head of the stairs, crying out, Peace! Peace! and told John Freeman, the butler, to serve out wine liberally to the servants and others. I played the President's March on the violin. John Suzet and some others were drunk for two days, and such another joyful time has never been seen in Washington. Mr. Madison and all his cabinet were pleased as any, but did not show their joy in this manner. Mrs. Madison was a remarkably fine woman. She was beloved by everybody in Washington, white and colored. Whenever soldiers marched by during the war, she always sent out and invited them in to take wine and refreshments, giving them liberally of the best in the house. Madeira wine was better in those days than now, and more freely drank. In the last days of her life, before Congress purchased her husband's papers, she was in a state of absolute poverty, and I think sometimes suffered for the necessaries of life. While I was a servant of Mr. Webster, he often sent me to her with a market basket full of provisions, and told me whenever I saw anything in the house that I thought she was in need of to take it to her. I often did this, and occasionally gave her small sums from my own pocket, though I had years before bought my freedom of her. Mr. Madison, I think, was one of the best men that ever lived. I never saw him in a passion, and never knew him to strike a slave, although he had over one hundred. Neither would he allow an overseer to do it. Whenever any slaves were reported to him as stealing or cutting up badly, he would send for them and admonish them privately, and never mortify them by doing it before others. They generally served him very faithfully, 
He was temperate in his habits. I don't think he drank a quart of brandy in his whole life. He ate light breakfasts and no suppers, but rather a hearty dinner, with which he took invariably but one glass of wine. When he had hard drinkers at his table, who had put away his choice Madeira pretty freely, in response to his numerous toasts, he would touch his glass to his lips, or dilute it with water, as they pushed about the decanters. For the first fifteen years of his life, he drank no wine at all. After he retired from the presidency, he amused himself chiefly on his farm. At the election for members of the Virginia legislature in 1829 or 30, just after General Jackson's ascension, he voted for James Barber, who had been a strong Adams man. He also presided, I think, over the Convention for Amending the Constitution in 1832. After news of peace and of General Jackson's victory at New Orleans, which reached here about the same time, there were great illuminations. We moved into the Seven Buildings corner of 19th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue, and while there, General Jackson came on with his wife, to whom numerous dinner parties and levees were given. Mr. Madison also held levees every Wednesday evening, at which wine, punch, coffee, ice cream, etc. were liberally served, unlike the present custom. While Mr. Jefferson was president, he and Mr. Madison, then his Secretary of State, were extremely intimate. In fact, two brothers could not have been more so. Mr. Jefferson always stopped overnight at Mr. Madison's, in going and returning from Washington. I have heard Mr. Madison say that when he went to school, he cut his own wood for exercise. He often did it also when at his farm in Virginia. He was very neat, but never extravagant in his clothes. He always dressed wholly in black, coat, breeches, and silk stockings, with buckles in the shoes and breeches. He never had but one suit at a time. He had some poor relatives that he had to help, and wished to set an example of economy in a matter of dress. He was very fond of horses, and an excellent judge of them, and no jockey ever cheated him. He never had less than seven horses in the Washington stables while president. He often told the story that one day riding home from the court with Tom Barber, father of Governor Barber, they met a colored man who took off his hat. Mr. M. raised his, to the surprise of old Tom, to whom Mr. M. replied, I never allow a negro to excel me in politeness. Though a similar story is told of General Washington, I have often heard this, as above, from Mr. Madison's own lips. After Mr. Madison retired from the presidency in 1817, he invariably made a visit twice a year to Mr. Jefferson, sometimes stopping two or three weeks, till Mr. Jefferson's death in 1826. I was always with Mr. Madison till he died, and shaved him every other day for sixteen years. For six months before his death, he was unable to walk, and spent most of his time reclined on a couch. But his mind was bright, and with his numerous visitors, he talked with as much animation and strength of voice as I ever heard him in his best days. I was present when he died. That morning, Suki brought him his breakfast as usual. He could not swallow. His niece, Mrs. Willis, said, What is the matter, Uncle James? Nothing more than a change of mind, my dear. His head instantly dropped, and he ceased breathing as quietly as the snuff of a candle goes out. He was about eighty-four years old, and was followed to the grave by an immense procession of white and colored people. The pallbearers were Governor Barber, Philip P. Barber, Charles P. Howard, and Reuben Conway. The two last were neighboring farmers. End of A Colored Man's Reminiscences of James Madison by Paul Jennings